good to be able to sing together like this about the hope that we have, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That is the cry of every single Christian, you know, that we do live, but we live by the power of another one who lives inside of us. That is the secret of the Christian life. Not just me who lives, but Christ actually who lives inside of me. You know, today, church, as we continue on in our summer series on the book of Proverbs, I'm going to be addressing today a topic I think it's absolutely critical to us North Americans, and that is the topic of money. Now, we've talked about this, you know, I mean, before, but I don't think we can talk about this enough given how much of a struggle we have in our country with regards to how we handle money. Now, all of us in our society use money, and the book of Proverbs has a ton to say about the topic of money. But the question for us is, what exactly is money? I mean, we all use it, but what is it? Now, money, sort of in a very simple, sort of maybe overly simplified definition, is really a tool, we would say, or a medium of exchange that consists of things like banknotes and coins that we use basically to facilitate the trading of our time, our energy, and also the resources that we have. Now, when God created the world, he distributed all over the earth a finite amount of resources, precious you know, metals and other things, that he actually intended for human beings to extract and to use to create things and then to share them with each other as we fill the earth. You can actually see this as part of the design if you look in the book of Genesis chapter 2 at the creation outset. Genesis chapter 2 verses 10 to 12 says this. You can follow along your screens. Um, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed all the whole, around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. Now, it's important to understand that this account in Genesis is actually written prior to the fall. So the distribution of resources in the land of Havilah is not a result of sin. And if you continue down in the Genesis account, you realize that when he describes the other lands and he describes the other rivers, they are not described with having the same level of resources as the land of Havilah actually is described. So we learn from this, other words, that if you think about it, it's already in the fabric you know, of how God created the world that he specifically designed for certain places to have particular types of material there that other places would not have. And you can see this, actually, as you continue on through the Bible, and you see how trade develops. So, for example, if you look in the time of King Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 10, with the Queen of Sheba's gift as she came to see the wise king, we read this in the biblical text. 1 Kings 10.10 says, Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So you can see, right, that from the Queen of Sheba's land, she brings something very rare and something they did not have access to in large quantities. The same language is actually used here as the text continues to describe the type of almug wood that is brought by King Hiram of Tyre through his ships that was used actually to build very special things in the house of the Lord. And the language is the same. Never again was such material basically seen. You can see actually how trade continues to further develop in the Old Testament when you read Ezekiel chapter 27, verses 12 to 14. 
And you read actually about the immense wealth that the ancient city of Tyre brought to ancient Israel, I mean, brought to the other nations around them as they traded. 12 to 14 says this, Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind. Silver, iron, tin, and lead, they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach traded with you. They exchanged human beings and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. From Beth Togarmah, they exchanged horses, war horses, and mules for your wares. Now, this whole section continues on and on, and you've probably, probably never actually paid attention to sections like this in the book of Ezekiel before. But it's important, actually, because when you read the whole chapter, you realize there's a huge list of tradable commodities that are, that are traded by the nations around them. Everything, for example, from ivory to coral to emeralds, wine, iron, wool, calamus, there's all kinds of things. Some of these things, you might not even know what they are. Now, in this Ezekiel 27, God does condemn the city of Tyre for its godlessness, you know, and its failure to worship him, even as it grew fabulously wealthy. But the one thing he never condemns in the Bible is the idea of trade, economic trade. In fact, when you look at Isaiah's vision of the new heavens and the new earth in the very last chapters of the book, the, uh, the, the ideal state of humanity actually involves economic trade. And you can see this, actually, when, Tarsh, when Isaiah describes his vision of what a redeemed humanity looks like, and he explains that the ships of Tarshish will come and bring their gold and their silver to a restored Israel, and in fact, even the kings of the world will bring their wealth together. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place in which, place in which the resources of the world will actually be shared amongst the people of the world and distributed and for the flourishing of humanity. This is God's vision for an ideal humanity, a vision of people actually cooperating with each other and sharing the distributed wealth and resources that exist in the world with each other to promote human flourishing. That's the picture that we get from the Bible. Now, to think about modern economics and how this plays in with our world, if you look some 250 years ago, there was a guy named Adam Smith who is known basically as the father of modern economics, you know, and he wrote this fabulous book called The Wealth of Nations. Um, some of you who have studied commerce or economics might have heard about this book. I think it's a crying shame that they don't make you read stuff like this in school today. So if you're studying and trying to learn about finances and money, you should get this book and, like, read about it. It's foundational, I think, to uh, our society and understanding how the world operates. Basically, in the book... One of the things that Adam Smith argues from, in a nutshell, basically, is that wealth increases in a society when people become specialists in trade, specialists, sorry, and they trade for the things that they do not have. So, for example, you could, if you wanted to build your own house, go out and get an axe, chop down your own wood, make a hundred planks, and then go spend some time, you know, casting metal and making a hundred nails. And at the end of the day, you have a hundred nails and you have a hundred planks of wood. You do this for enough days, hopefully you'll have enough supplies to build your dream house that you want. Now, you could do this, but Adam Smith says there's actually a better way to do this. And he says it's actually better for you to become a blacksmith instead and to become a specialist and get really good at making nails and you make 500 nails. And then your neighbor down the road who also wants to build a house named, let's say, Joe, goes and becomes a carpenter instead. And he gets really good at what he does, and he makes 500 planks of wood. And then what you do is, because both of you want to build houses, 
You trade your excess nails that you can't use with Joe down the street so that at the end of the day, instead of each of you having 100 nails and 100 planks of wood each, each of you now have, because of trading with each other, 250 planks of wood and 250 nails. See, you're far better off as a result of that. It's one day's labor. Nothing has changed other than the fact that you've become specialists. But this is what it means to be wealthier. A guy who has 250 as opposed to 100 is wealthier. Now, the reason that industrialized countries in our modern world today are richer than the poorer agricultural countries around us is really because of these of three things associated with this. One is the idea of specialization. The second thing is a stable monetary currency to encourage trade. And the third thing is a large free market in which you're able to trade your excess goods and your materials and your resources and your time on. These three things are absolutely essential to making economic trade work and increasing wealth in an area. See, trade is the reason that some of you who have extremely specific jobs in our church are able to survive, though you don't farm or grow your own food. Now, I love talking to people in our church, and I've found that some of you have, like, the strangest sort of jobs, you know, here. We have people in our church, for example, who make their living selling goods on Amazon, you know, for example. That's all that they do. We have other people here who clean swimming pools all day. That's what they do. We have other people in our church who process immigration cases, those who debate, for example, patent law. We have teachers in our world. We have people who specialize in massage therapy. We have people in our church who get paid to animate hair of characters in movies. And you look at things like that and you go, how on earth, if you spend eight hours doing that a day, could you actually take care of yourself and your family? And the answer to that is modern trade and in a modern economy. See, most of us do not farm. We don't know how to sew our own clothes. Most of us wouldn't know what to do with a sewing machine today. I remember watching a documentary once about kids in school, and they showed them some French fries, and they said, do you know where this comes from? And they said, no idea. And then they showed them a potato, and they said, do you know what this is? They're like, it's a potato. And it's like, does this have anything to do with your French fries? They're like, no, no. See, it's bizarre what the modern world has done to us. We are so specialized that there are children today who do not even realize that a French fry is not a, something that grows on a tree. They don't realize it actually comes from potato. That is the level of specialization we have in our society. Now, the point is this. If we lived in a primitive society that does not have currency, does not have a large open free market, nor the ability to trade our excess goods, it means that everyone ends up having to grow their own food. Everyone will sew their own clothes. Everyone will take care of things. And as a result of that, you end up spending a huge amount of your time doing these things, and you cannot benefit from specialization. See, a modern economy allows the common person to have a massive selection of goods that a primitive society would not have. And this is what we call raising the overall standard of living. See, why this is so important to understand basic economics is because you realize that wealth isn't primarily something to be discovered, even though we might discover resources and things. Wealth is actually something to be created. And it is the result of human effort and work exercising the God-given brains that we have to make the best use of the things that God has gifted to us. See, and greater wealth, productivity, leads to more food for people, better medical care, 
better housing, better infrastructure to promote things like better drinking water and so on. All this stuff adds up to what we consider to be human flourishing. And nobody will look at this thing and say that it's a bad thing. It's a great thing. God's word also tells us that when people not only do this, but when we live according to his law, God actually blesses us through our work with this wealth. It's actually a gift from him by operating according to the principles he has placed in this world. So if you look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it says this, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Now, I know that us modern people have a, some of us have a very romantic view of minimal living. But the truth is, <laughs> for most of us here who don't come from other countries or other places where you've seen hard times, poverty and living poor is not something to idealize. I know that in the West here, everyone has these romantic notions of that thing. But if you've grown up poor or you have parents who have grown up super poor, you will know it is not fun and is not romantic, right? We should be very thankful for the standard of living that we do enjoy and the gifts that God has given us here. See, the Bible does teach that God is capable and can bless people in the midst of poverty. There's no question about that. But never does the Bible indicate that poverty is a blessing from God or an ideal state. In many cases, poverty, especially when it's the result of injustice, actually leads to very dangerous and sinful behavior in a society. But ultimately, no matter whether we are poor or rich, as Christians, we always take heart in the fact that God is in control. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 reminds us and says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Okay. Now, even though it's up to God to do this, and even though the Proverbs does speak a lot about the material blessings and the blessings of God being given to his people who follow him, a complete picture of wealth must also include the warnings that are given in the book of Proverbs and also the additional teachings that are given about money and what its effects are as well. So what I'd like to do for us today is I'd like to hop around different places in the book of Proverbs and I'd like us to see at least five things about money and how what we can learn about money from God's word here, okay? Five things. Let's do this. Number one, this one. money is the fruit of hard work. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4 says this. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, this is a no-brainer. In other words, what it's saying, rather self-evident, if you're lazy, you'll be poor, but if you work hard, you will have riches. Now, this isn't the only proverb that links poverty um, to and slackness and idleness to a, a lack of things, but and also riches to working hard. So, for example, Proverbs 12, verse 11 says this, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. I would consider three or four hours a day on YouTube a worthless pursuit. It's, it's amazing how much what social media and other things can do to us like over time. There's just so many ways in a modern society to fritter away your time. There's productivity is important. Proverbs 12, verse 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. You've got to understand that in these times, if you didn't go out and hunt, it's not like you could go to Safeway and buy yourself a steak and cook it. You had to catch it, you had to kill it, and then you had to cook it. 
Proverbs 14, verse 23 says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. Okay, basically, you, you add up all these things, all of us get this. You don't work, you don't eat. It's very self-evident in the world that God has designed that He has made it such that the world needs to be improved through work. Food does not just magically appear in different places. Nobody depends on randomness to take care of themselves. That's not the way that the world functions. Adam was clearly made in the Genesis account to work the Garden of Eden. And you have to remember, this is pre-fall. Some people come and talk to me and they say, oh, I hate work. I wish Adam had never sinned. I'm like, no, you, you got it wrong. The Bible clearly teaches that work is not a curse, actually. Work was built into the fabric of the world. In fact, God worked through six days and rested on the seventh to show the importance of work and also to establish a template for how human beings were to work and rest. You like your weekends? You should thank God for your weekends because he created the idea of weekends. That's where we get it from. Now, what sin did in our world was make work painful. As Adam was told, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat now. So in other words, what happened as a result of sin was employment actually became painful. So before this, Adam was to be able to work the earth, you know, to cultivate it, make the garden look nice, spread his, uh, his family all around over the face of the earth. But the one thing he would never have to do is work just to survive. Adam, as a result of a sinless world, was capable of eating from the tree of life and having all of his, good, his provision taken care of. Imagine if you didn't have to worry about your housing or having to eat. You could just work for fun. You could be an artist, and the term starving artist would never apply to you again. That's the way the world was originally designed to be. The difficulty we have today as a result of sin is that work is painful, and that's why some of you are at jobs you absolutely hate and you have no choice. Why? Because you have mouths to feed. You have no tree of life to have access from. You need medical care. You need all these things. And if you don't work, even at a job you don't like, you will suffer. That's what sin did. Work is not the curse. Pain and death is the curse as a result of sin. Okay? So my point is this. You know, we were originally made to work hard with our hands and working hard with our hands reflects a hard-working God who makes all things well. And the money that we receive from that should adequately reflect the type of contribution that we are making to human flourishing. That's the point of money. It's supposed to be proportional to the amount of flourishing you promote in the world. Now, I know that in modern society, especially young people today, you have this notion they often think, what's the least work I can do and get a, can get away with so I can get the most pay? Now, this kind of pragmatic thinking, I get it, is vogue today, but it's absolutely problematic. There's two reasons I can give you for that. For one, if you're thinking like this, you are probably thinking about how you can cut corners, have a lack of integrity in your work, and hoping that you can get by making a lot of money by doing less work. The deal is the work has to get done, and somebody else is probably going to end up picking up your slack. So your laziness will mean that somebody else has to work harder and suffer more because of you not doing something. The second thing is why it's fundamentally wrong is that you're setting an example of mediocrity and laziness that does not reflect the creator God who has made you and has employed you to work for him. 
You make God look like a mediocre individual by doing so, especially since you bear his image. That's why I think we as Christians, it's imperative for us to learn to work hard with our hands because it's a reflection on our Father. Now, and if you think this way, and you're still hoping in your mind, well, I just hope to make a lot of money and I don't have to work very hard for it, I'm going to tell you that your plans and your thoughts of that probably might end up making you money, but you probably won't keep it at the end of the day. And the reason I say that is because you would probably lose it all quickly if you came into big money quickly. One of the biggest lottery winners in Canada, Canadian history, was a man named Gerald Muswagon, and he won $10 million, I think, in Manitoba in 1998. But the amazing thing was that Gerald Muswagon, like many other lottery winners, basically lost it all. He spent all of his money on drugs, alcohol, houses, buying TVs for his friends and other electronics, and he invested very poorly in failed businesses. In just seven years, he was penniless, surviving on odd jobs, and eventually committed suicide. Now, that's terrible, actually, to think about. But it's really just as Proverbs 13, 11 says. The Bible says this, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. See, if you don't work for it, and you don't how learn how to control your wealth and your spending, you actually won't know how to manage it. It's not going to help you if I give you $10 million because you'll be just like that. See, that's why debt and poverty cannot usually be solved simply by giving handouts to people. Unless a person learns to control their spending, no handout in this world is big enough actually to help them. See, God's blessings with regards to wealth aren't random. But what we see in this world is that his blessing is normally mediated through human hard work and skill. That's the way he wants to normally choose to bless people. See, as a Christian, I always urge, especially young people today, to be excellent in their work. Don't just do the bare minimum so you can get by, but work heartily for the Lord and not for men. Proverbs 22 verse 29 says this, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. See, when you are good at what you do, when you're efficient and when you're excellent, whether that's making burgers at McDonald's or you're mopping floors, do you know what you're communicating? You're communicating the excellency of the God who has made you. And you are also communicating actually love to your neighbors. How? by improving the economy and raising the overall standard of wealth in society. And wealth actually is God's reward for your work. See, if janitors, administrators, doctors, and all of us in our society were to be more efficient, more skilled at what we were doing, not just sitting on our hands and working half as hard and trying to get away with things, cutting corners, I guarantee you that I do think the systems of our world would work better. We'd have more opportunity to have CAT scans. We'd have more efficiency in our hospitals. We would have better sanitation and so on. The overall standard of living would increase. So don't ever think that your mundane job that you're doing is something insignificant and you're hoping just to do it to make a paycheck. No. What you're actually doing by being a barista at Starbucks when you are efficient at making drinks and you make the best drinks possible and everyone knows you as an excellent worker, you are actually loving your entire neighborhood by raising the overall standard of wealth by your efficiency and your hard work. 
This is what God commands. This is really important. See, as a Christian, this is critical for us to understand. We work hard, but we understand that our hard work is not only part of God's will for us, but this is the way that God will choose to serve us as well and provide for our needs. Okay? Number two, second thing we can learn about money. Money is not to be gained immorally. Proverbs 11 verse 1 says this, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. In other words, God hates fraud. Proverbs 16, verse 8 basically says the same thing. Better is a little with righteousness with great re- than great revenues with injustice, right? All he's saying here in modern terms is like, yeah, right now during the pandemic, you could lie and cheat the government. You could try to cash in on the CREB when you don't actually have the ability to. You could tell your employer you're working a certain number of hours when you really are not. Why? Just to line your pockets, you know, with unjust cash, See, but as a Christian, you can't compromise your integrity. And if you're tempted to do so, the real question for you is, why do you really need that money? Why do you think that having that much money is so important that you're willing to sell out your morality to do so? Is it because you ultimately believe at the end of the day that your provision and your care depends on you? Or do you actually believe that there is a God who says, you know what's more important is living according to my standards and reflecting me. And if you can believe that, can you believe that I will take care of you even though you don't cut corners and you don't steal and you don't cheat? See, many people have to do this in the world because they say, in a world where there is no God, if I don't do it, who else is going to do it? The Christian says, if I don't do it because it's morally wrong to do so, I know there is one who will take care of me and bless me as a result of that. There is no need for me to do such a thing. You know, if that's you and you've stolen or you've done evil things, go and pay it back. You know, go and, go and make the, rights, uh, the wrongs right. Fix the things and reflect an upright God to this world. See, if you're a Christian here, and let's say God has put you in a position of power over other people, Um, don't exploit other people's basic needs or their vulnerability for your own selfish gain. Proverbs 11 verses 26 to 28 speaks very specifically against this. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever diligently seeks good seeks favor, but evil comes to him who searches for it. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. That's what the text says. Now, this is referring to a practice that has a modern name, and it's called price gouging. It's biblical truth applied to the 21st century, and we saw this in COVID-19. Like when people went to Costco, and they bought up all the Lysol wipes, and they stuffed themselves full of sanitizer and left. And then they went on Craigslist and sold it for quadruple the price for Amazon.ca. You know why people are upset with that? And they should rightly be upset with that. Because it's taking advantage of human vulnerability and basic needs. Why? For your own gain. And deep inside of our souls, we look at it and say, that is reprehensible. That is dirty. You don't even need to be a Christian to feel that. You look at that and you'd say, that's wrong. Now, the people who are caught doing that, they have all sorts of justifications. I have a mortgage to pay. I have five kids, this and that. But most of us look at that and just go like, we appreciate when you do business, but not like this, exploiting other people. You know what the scriptures warn about? It says the scriptures basically say here, look, if you do this, people will curse you. Basically, you'll reap a curse of God over your own head. Even if people can't catch up to you, God will. And it, but if you live righteously and you don't exploit other people, God looks on such things with favor. 
There is a big boss in the sky who is watching how all people cut their deals in this life. And if you've been swindled in this life, don't worry that you think that people will ultimately get away with it. God sees everything. And also, he sees your conduct as well. The way that you take advantage of other people or the way that you live. See, it doesn't matter if the world applauds you for your business savvy or your skill in crushing the competition. If the way that you practice business and the way that you make money is immoral or it's lacking in integrity, at the end of the day, you will face an almighty of God and there will be justice. You know, you can tell what the difference is between the righteous and the wicked. I love what Bruce Waltke has to say and describe it. In a nutshell, the righteous are willing, he says, to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That's really how you figure it out. That's the definition between wickedness and righteousness. Is it I use you for me or is it I use me for you? That's really the essence of Christianity. In fact, you know, when you think about this, the oppression of the poor, the reason that oppressing the poor, taking advantage of, of people is so bad is because it's not just wrong to like crush people, but because it's an attack on God himself. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 31. It says this, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You know, I love what Ray Ortland says about this verse. It's, it's really good. He says, When you make money by the blessing of the Lord, you don't have to bend the rules. You can keep your promises. You do not have to overwork yourself. Your conscience can stay clear, and you make enough money to share with others, which is joyful, and there is no sorrow in that. See, this is the point. Illegal money or blood money and all these other kinds of illicitly gained means is not a blessing from God. Just because you have money does not mean you are under the blessing of God. But the blessing of God does usually lead to a type of wealth and provision and care for you. But I can tell you this, at least about what poverty is. Do you know what true poverty is? True poverty is actually ignoring God's word. Proverbs 13 verse 18 says this. Poverty and grace, disgrace comes to him who ignores instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is honored. It doesn't say poverty and disgrace comes to those who have a small bank account, right? It's talking about if you don't heed the instruction of the Lord, you're poor. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. You are absolutely poor in the economy of God. See, just because you have money doesn't mean you're truly rich in God's eyes. It all depends on how you got it. Number three, money is not supremely valuable. Now, I know that in our world, people idolize money. But in Canada, we're polite enough and smart enough to know that you can't say things like that when you're running a business. Like, I love money. My, 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 my bench line is, my bottom line is money. You have to say things like, we believe in taking care of the customer. We believe in also uh, serving charities and doing things. Although you secretly want to get money for yourself, it's not polite to be able to say. But I think even deep down inside, we know that there are more important things in life than money. And money itself can actually lead you into a lot of trouble. Proverbs 13, verse 7 says this, The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. Now, it's one of the things that money brings you. You want a higher chance of being kidnapped? Make more money. Get rich. What about this? Proverbs 15, verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. We understand this, right? The proverb is basically saying love is better than money. 
Even Hollywood knows this. Now, and they make a lot of films that portray this, main characters throwing away their wealth and prestige, you know what I mean, to fall in love with each other. And we eat this stuff up and we go and we see their films. And they make a lot of money off the fact that people know that love is more important than money. So ironic. What about wisdom? Proverbs 16, verse 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Or Proverbs 15, 16, which says this, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So you know what what it's saying? The Proverbs is saying here that, you know what's way better than having a treasure chest full of gold bricks? It's actually to have the fear of the Lord and to have His wisdom with you, to have His instruction for life. See, even non-Christians acknowledge that there are other things more important than money if you really get to the root of it. We really do need to have the right perspective on money because you have the wrong perspective of money. You will passionately pursue it for things that it cannot actually do for you. Honestly, I think that whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, one of the most helpful lenses to see money through and to understand what the value of money is and what it can and can't do is through the lens of death. My fourth point is this. Number four, money cannot offer ultimate comfort when you're facing death. Proverbs 11 verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. See, if it's actually true that there is a God who will judge you at the end of the day and you will give an account for your whole life and of the money and the wealth that he has entrusted to you, All the money in the world is not going to help you when you die. You will not be able to buy him off with what he has given you. You know, one of the most sobering stories I've ever heard with regards to facing death and the fleeting pleasures of money is the story told of Dr. Richard Teal, who was a Singaporean cosmetic surgeon who was very healthy and fit. He worked out like six days a week in the gym, but he was suddenly diagnosed with stage four cancer and died a few months later at the age of 40. Dr. Teo said this, I am a typical product of today's society. From young, I've always been under the influence and impression that to be happy is to be successful, and to be successful is to be wealthy. So I led my life according to this motto. Now, this guy says that he made a fortune out of liposuctions, breast augmentation, eyelid surgeries, and so on. You actually read his story. He says that he used to be in a sort of like training in ophthalmology to be an eye doctor, but he realized there was a problem, right? People will grumble with you about paying 20 bucks, he says, to go and see a doctor, but they'll have no problem, that same person, dropping $10,000 on a nose job. And he's like, it just shows where our priorities are. And so he said, I went into aesthetics. Why? Because there was way more money in making people look better. Vanity, he says, is far more profitable than healthcare. Anyways, he did this thing, and he said as a result of his increased wealth, basically, he got to hang out with people like Eduardo Severin, who's the co-founder of Facebook, uh, Rachel Kum, who is like the Miss Universe Singapore, uh, and then he spent his wealth on luxury cars and houses, basically living life in the fast lane. But when he was dying and he got this terminal diagnosis of cancer, he realized that none of these things that he had, all of his toys and his experiences brought him joy at all. And as he was dying, he addressed a class of medical students, upcoming medical students, and he told them that basically many of them would become fabulously wealthy, but he wanted to give them this caution. This is what he said. There is nothing wrong with being successful, with being rich or wealthy. 
The only trouble is that a lot of us, like myself, couldn't handle it. When I started to accumulate, the more I had, the more I wanted. I became so obsessed that nothing really mattered to me. Patients were just a source of income, and I tried to squeeze every single cent out of these patients. A lot of times we forget whom we are supposed to be serving. We become so lost that we serve nobody else but just ourselves. When I faced death, when I had to, I stripped myself of everything, and I focused only on what is essential. The irony is that a lot of times, only when we learn how to die, then we learn how to live. You know, the interesting thing about that most outlets don't note about this, but I found this actually by finding uh, an additional testimony, was that Dr. Teal himself says that he was baptized as a Christian when he was 20 years old, but he admits the only reason he did that was because all of his friends were doing it and it was popular. He says that in his 20 years as a Christian or calling himself one, he never owned a Bible or even read one. But when he was lying there on the surgeon's table, dying, he heard a voice speaking to him in his head, and the voice told him, this has to happen to you at your prime because it's the only way you can understand. He says as he was dying, he was very shocked to hear that voice, and he asked the question, well, why? Why do I have to go through this suffering? He says later on when he was sleeping, I think after his surgery, he had a vision of these words imprinted in his mind, Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 8. Now, because he had never read a Bible, he said, he actually didn't know anything about the book of Hebrews. He said he knew nothing about how many chapters is or where even to find it. But he knew it had something to do with the Bible, so he asked a friend for a Bible. And when he got the Bible, he thought that because Hebrew sounds like something ancient, he searched all over the Old Testament looking for the book, and he couldn't find it. So he figured maybe it's in the New Testament, so he started thumbing through, and then he eventually found it. And then he went to chapter 12 and found 7 to 8, and he was stunned by what he read. It reads like this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not not sons. Now, he was flabbergasted, he said, by this. He thought to himself, what are the chances that he could simply have dreamed up a book of the Bible and a specific chapter and a set of verses something so specific that would answer a question in his soul as he was dying. And as a result of that, he said, he declared to God, you win, he said twice, you win, God, you win. And he says, at that moment, I truly began to believe in God and in Jesus Christ. And he spent the last months of his life professing belief in Jesus and speaking to people about the emptiness of pursuing wealth and that what people need above all else in this world is not earthly wealth, but the wealth of God. See, friends and brothers and sisters and those of you who are listening to this, do you know what disaster is? Do you know what tough times are? They're often a tool that God uses to get your attention when you won't hear Him normally. That's exactly what it is. A tool for us, especially when we Christians are stuck in sin, a megaphone that He uses to grab your attention. Number five. Money giving, not money making, is the only way to be truly rich. Proverbs 11 verses 24 to 25 says this. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters himself will be watered. Like it seems like such a paradox, right? Right? You give freely and you'll actually grow richer? 
Yes. Why? Because there is an invisible moral law that God has built into this universe. And he says that if you will enrich others' lives, he who controls all wealth in this world will ultimately enrich you. But if you're stingy and you cling to it and you're selfish, all you will have at the end of the day is lack. In other words, God says, spend your life in compassion, kindness, giving, reflecting me to the watching world, and I will take care of you. Now, many times this comes as a result of material blessing, sure. Like I once read the story of a couple, a Christian couple, who was very moved by the story of a great businessman by the name of Latourneau, who worked on the reverse tithing principle. That is, he said, I will keep 10%, I will give away 90% to God. And God made him fabulously wealthy. This couple, basically, I read about, said that they had committed already at the start of their business to always give 50% of their profits away to the Lord. Somehow or another, with their pet business, they ended up making this um, uh, amazing, like, cat toilet seat. I didn't know that cats had toilet seats, but apparently it was a really good one. So he said it was picked up by Amazon, PetSmart, Bed Bath & Beyond and stuff, and overnight, says they were a commercial success. And he just said that it was so amazing, you know, and they wanted to encourage other people, when you are doing your business, God first, profit second. It is far more important to honor him. Do you know, as a Christian here, I know a number of you are businessmen, you are small business owners and stuff. I just ask you, do you think God first and profit second? Do you look at some clients who come to you in need and you know they can't really pay or whatever, and you're like, oh, like, you know, I just, it's so annoying to have these kind of people, you know, I just, uh, I'm not going to make enough money out of that. Do you, like Dr. Richard Teal, look at people purely as walking bank books and you say, how much money can I squeeze out of them? How much money can I get out of every single deal? Is that your bottom line? Is that what you live for? Or is what is more important to you in your business being excellent, being skilled at your work, being generous, being kind, making sure that you're never involved with illicit gain because you want to reflect the God who is there and can you trust him actually to take care of you? See, it's fascinating when you think about it as a Christian. You really want to be rich, learn how to give it away, not hoard. You know, I've never heard anyone telling me as I've met them in hospital beds or whatever, or I've visited them in palliative care, I've never heard anyone tell me as a pastor, these are my last regrets and my wishes. I wish that I had bought an extra house. I wish that I had more money in the bank account. I wish I only had worked harder and built another business. I only wish, no, they never say that. Oftentimes they come to me and they'll say things like, Pastor Sam, like, I, I only wish I'd spent more time with my daughter. I only wish that my son was a Christian. I only wish that I had stopped, you know, working so hard and I spent more time with my wife. I only wish I had done more for the church and served God. I only wish I didn't ruin that relationship. I had. At the end of the day, do you know what people often say when they're dying? Nobody ever talks about how they wish they could have gotten more. They always say, I wish that I could have given more. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, it's the same. And I think that's part of the common grace of God in our lives. People have a deep-rooted sense that a good life is a life that's not about getting, but it's a life that's about giving. You know, friends, as we wrap this up, I think it's so important for us to understand this. And the reason we can have such commonality, we understand things like this, is because we're made in the image of God. You know, with regards to money and wealth, it's important for us to understand that God designed us to create wealth and that he filled the earth with resources for us to use. 
The wisdom of Proverbs basically teaches us to work hard with our hands and to work excellently so that we can bless others with that wealth as we turn around and pour it out on other people. And in this way, you show two things, both the excellency of your God and the generosity of your God. So in order to be truly wealthy, being wealthy is not just about getting, but it's learning how to give, you know, as well. And that's how you flourish as a human being. And when you think about people who lived wisely and did this well, nobody did this better than Jesus, who was the ultimate receiver and rich person and the ultimate giver as well. Jesus never compromised his integrity, and he poured out his own life in radical generosity towards others. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, and that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus had a palace in heaven, but on earth, he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, even though foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. I have nowhere to go, no home to call my own, though he was a prince. And though he had no sin to pay for, no debts of his own, he voluntarily took on our debts of sin before an almighty God and paid for them with his own precious blood. He died as a cursed person on the cross, but not because of his own sin. He died as a curse for our sake, and God vindicated his righteousness by raising him from the dead. And Jesus fulfilled on the cross his very own words that he spoke. It is more blessed to give than to receive. See, as Christians, we don't need to be like everyone else in this world, frantically amassing wealth. We just need the basics, okay? We, we just need basics first. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 to 8 says this, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me. Do you pray like this? Do you, I know that many of us, I think all of us in this room will probably pray, God, I need more money, please. You know, I need a new job. I need this, you know. Have you also prayed the other half of this, which is, God, please don't give me too much. I'm not sure if I can handle it. Just, just, just enough so that I can provide for myself, but, but not too much, God, lest, lest I forget you and I sin against you by thinking I'm all that. Do you pray the second half? If you don't pray the second half, it shows something about what you believe about money. You don't realize that this is the only prayer in the entire book of Proverbs. Proverbs has no other prayer except this one in this book. And it's, that should be very telling for us as people who are striving to seek godliness. What should you pray about when it comes to money? This is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus' words, basically, which is, give us this day our daily bread. That's exactly what it is. And the point is, Christians have to be so concerned about our relationship with God that we are even willing to put our money in the altar and say, God, burn it if it's too much for me to handle. Burn it all. This is Jesus, you know. He lived by daily bread from God. His food was to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. He died on the cross for our sins to give us hope of a new future and to make us his very own children. And he says as his own children, you come and pray to me. Ask me for anything. Ask me for whatever you wish. The Father will give it to you. See, we don't need to worry about ultimately providing for ourselves as if we need to take care of ourselves fully. We have a God to go to. See, God doesn't care about how much money you have in the bank. What he does care about is that you're generous with what he gives you. See, like, if your goal here in Vancouver, you know, wherever you are, is to basically accumulate enough money for yourself and then retire so that you can go and then you can play golf and live somewhere where it's cheaper with your million-dollar home that you just sold and so on, 
I just want to say to you, you're going to waste your retirement. You will waste your retirement, and you will waste the last portion of your life. And I don't want you to think this. If you think that you can sell your expensive home here, and you have a nest egg, that you can go live somewhere cheaply like this, and that will take care of you, you think again. You're absolutely wrong. The Proverbs prayer here prays, don't give me too much, God. Don't give me too little. Money is not ultimate security. You are. And that's why I go to you first. You give to the church. You give to missions. You give to charity. You spend your money taking care of other people in this world. You might be a fool in the world's eyes, but you are not a fool in God's eyes. You are living out his intentions for humanity. The resources of this world were not only meant to be extracted, they were meant to be worked on, wealth created, and it was meant to be shared. To be truly rich in this life is not just about getting, it is about giving. You know, there's a quote, you know, from a book called Tuesdays with Maury that says this, everybody knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. If we did, we would do things differently. Non-Christian quote, but very, very good as well. You know, friends, I, I just want to encourage you. Where are you at with your money actually right now? Where are you at with it? Is your ultimate goal in life just to maximize your savings and think about how much you can accumulate for yourself? Or is your ultimate goal say, to say, God, I want to honor you. I want to live for you. I want to use every penny that I have to be placed at your disposal. And if I were to find out that I had cancer tonight and I was going to die in four months, would I regret the way that I lived the last year, the last five years, or the last 25 years? Would you be able to say to God, God, I've always made your kingdom and seeking you first the priority even with my own money? And if not, you need to make an adjustment, I would say, in life. And an adjustment that's made out of trust in a Jesus who has provided for you always and will continue to provide for you even as you give up of what you think is most important to secure your future in this life. Friends, what God is calling you to do today is not just give your money to the church and give money to other people. Yes, you will learn to become generous, but actually it's a reorientation of the heart. He wants you to say, Jesus, you are my treasure. And because you are my treasure, I am free to give away the rest of my worldly treasure because I will never be poor as long as I have you. Can you believe that as a Christian today? And if you can believe that today, you will give not only of your time, your energy, and your money, but you will give of your entire life in joyful obedience to your Savior. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, so wonderful to know that you made this world full of things, oh God, for us to use and to discover and to create from, oh God, to raise the standard of living, to love our neighbors as ourselves. God, money is just a tool. But I pray, Father, that money would never become a God to us, oh God, that we bow down and serve, pretending to serve you as well, serving two masters. Father, I pray, O oh God, you would teach us how to be diligent in our work and to be honest in the way that we work as well, and that the wealth that we receive would not just simply be hoarded, but be given away as well as we think about what it means to live a flourishing life. But God, above all else, help us to remember that we can be very generous with our earthly treasures as long as you are our ultimate treasure. So I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to prize, to love, and to appreciate Jesus more and more as the days go by. May we use our wealth, O oh God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.